bottles and car seats and travel systems. They don't have prams anymore. They're travel systems. And cots and sleep suits and bibs. And I could go on and on giving you the list of things that my wife and I had to purchase before the big day. Literature would need to be read on pregnancy and parenting. Names would have to be discussed and chosen. And that's before we mention the seismic mental adjustments, nor the whole issue of pain management. I won't go there. Whether you are a family member or friend who's been involved in this experience, then I'm sure you agree that preparing for life is a pleasure and a privilege. For all the hours we need to spend thinking and planning and buying and worrying, we count it no small honour to be involved in the process. Yet, isn't it interesting, and indeed the case, that when it comes to the other end of the spectrum, we are not so forthright. While we happily prepare for the life of another, we are more than a little reticent when it comes to preparing for death. Indeed, the great enemy has become the unspoken word in our vocabulary, the subject that we do not wish to discuss in our culture. As one writer ironically comments, in the Victorian age, everyone talked about death and the taboo subject was sex. In our generation, dying and death is taboo while we are preoccupied with sex. The whole business of dying is hidden behind a screen of words, passing away, the departed, chapels of rest, and so on. And yet quite against the grain of that 21st century world in which we live, I want to take you back 2,000 years to a man who faced up to his death and burial ahead of time. As we continue our series in Mark's Gospel, Following Jesus, we see in several astonishing incidents how Jesus is preparing for the future, and in particular, for the death he will die and the burial that will follow. So, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 31. We've already had the passage read to us, but it would be good to have the Bible open before you as we move through. It's page 1029 in the Pew Bibles. As we enter the 14th chapter of Mark, we move into the final hours of Jesus' life. And today, as we begin to make this journey that will lead us to the cross, it is important to see that there are two plot lines within the passage. And we see this in the incidents today. The first is what we could call the subplot. And we see evidence of this in verse 1. The chief priests and teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest and kill Jesus. According to these verses, the arrest and then death of Jesus will be the result of human schemers who will seek to get rid of Jesus, their religious adversary, once and for all. The chief priests 
and law teachers were simply tired of this Galilean teacher who not only upstages them, but frequently shows up their hypocrisy. But they recognize that during the great feast of unleavened bread, it will not be a sensible time to make such an arrest. For the crowd need little excuse to begin an uprising when the religious fervor and nationalism is high. But all of this is a subplot to a divine purpose. For opportunity knocks, notice in verse 10 and 11, quicker than they expect. And from an unusual source, one of the twelve, Jesus' closest bands of followers, agrees to give details of Jesus' most intimate movement and betray him for cash. And so we must not miss the fact that the main plot of the passion narrative is not humanly construed, but divinely ordained. The main plot is God's plan. Just as the Apostle Peter could later preach to some Jews, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. And so in that light, Jesus in our stories today is making preparations for that which lies ahead of him and the Father has ordained for him. And we see two specific preparations. One for a cross and the other for a tomb. Firstly, in verses 3 to 9, there are preparations for burial. The story of this woman who anoints Jesus is surprising in many ways not least because it lies between two stories, sinister tales of male treachery and it offers a startling contrast between common devotion and the stunning betrayal of those who should have known better a disciple and the religious leaders the town of Bethany where this takes place lay just outside the city of Jerusalem and during the festival in which was also included the Passover feast thousands of pilgrims would descend upon the city. There simply wasn't enough room for everyone to stay, so some people would take tents with them, and other people would lodge in the outlying towns of which Bethany was one. And Jesus, in our story, is enjoying its hospitality. And we're simply informed that he was having a meal at the house of a man named Simon the leper. Now, we really don't know anything much more about this man from the Gospels. Perhaps he was a well-known leper whom Jesus had healed. In any case, Simon is not the focus of the story. For we're introduced to a woman who came with an alabaster jar of pure nard. And having broke the jar, she poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Verse 3. It is noticeable, is it not, that this woman is not even named, unlike Simon the leper who plays no more part in the story. And perhaps you may think that this reflects the attitudes towards women at the time. But may I suggest that it's more probable that we're likely that we need to focus on what this woman does as opposed to who she is. Do you remember the story earlier in Mark's Gospel about a woman who put two coins, her last coins, into the temple treasury? She too was nameless. Yet we have to focus on what she does, not who she is. And her act is one of extraordinary devotion. According to the Jewish custom, you usually washed your guests' feet when they came for a meal, 
and perhaps you would drop a few um, bits of ointment onto their head. Probably not very expensive stuff, maybe something a little bit more cheap. But what is remarkable about this story is the expensive perfume that is used and its great quantity. The woman's gift is simply extravagant. As we were hearing in the children's talk, pure nard was an ointment that came all the way from India and was probably quite rare, probably quite expensive. Indeed, we're told that it was equivalent to a year's wages. Imagine taking your year's salary for the last 12 months and pouring it over someone's head. Yet that's exactly what she did. And not without criticism from those around the table. For some who were there, probably Jesus' own disciples, thought that this was nothing more than a waste. And in particular, at the time of the feast, when the poor should be particularly considered, they felt that this money should have been given to the poverty-stricken. And so they rebuke her, maybe believing that the Old Testament is on their side, which promotes helping the poor and being sensible with your money. And in fact, they may also believe that Jesus will take side with them. Isn't this the Jesus who preached the good news to the poor? Isn't this the Jesus who a few weeks earlier had told a rich young ruler to go home, sell everything he had and give it to the poor? Surely Jesus would see their point of view. But to their surprise, it is the disciples who are rebuked and the woman who is commended in verse 6. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing. And notice the key words, to me. You see, the disciples have forgotten the importance of personal devotion to Jesus. They had forgotten what really mattered. If this woman's act was extravagant, which it was, it was also well-aimed. But the disciples are viewing other objects of love as more important than Jesus himself. And moreover, Jesus points out that this act of devotion is not only extravagant, but in a surprising way appropriate. Look at what he says in verse 8. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. It's quite a strange statement this, isn't it? Earlier we heard about Egyptian custom for burial. In the Jewish tradition, the dead would always be anointed before burial with oils and spices of different kinds. And the only exception would be in the case of a criminal who would be allowed no such luxury had he died a criminal's death. Hence the significance of this woman's act. Jesus, who realises that he will soon die such a criminal's death, interprets this woman's act as preparing him for it. Well, there would be no opportunity for anointing his body after his death, nor even on the third day when the women went to the tomb with oils and spices to discover that he was not there, he had risen. Jesus recognises that here is an opportunity now to anoint his body beforehand. In an amazing way, Jesus sees his own father's preparation for his burial ahead of time. Now, one of the interesting questions 
is whether the woman herself realised what she was doing. Certainly, there doesn't seem to be much indication of that in the passage itself. And although we can't totally rule it out, it seems that she had little significance herself as to what this act would symbolise. It is Jesus who interprets what she does. Again, this seems to be an astonishing example of God's purpose overriding human plans. And therefore, I think this gives us a wonderful encouragement this morning. If you cannot see how your little acts of devotion to Christ make a big difference, like this woman, perhaps you do what you can with the gifts you have, yet you cannot see how it fits into the great and grand and sometimes complex plans of God. Yet this woman's story shows that when we do what we can, and we do it for Jesus, God can use it in ways beyond our imagination. In this case, as a pre-burial anointment. And moreover, how could she have imagined the fact that God would use this story, her story, as an inspiration wherever the gospel would be preached all around the world? We're speaking about her this morning. And the essential challenge that she brings to us is this, particularly to those of us who are Christians. Are we extravagantly and appropriately devoted to Jesus? This woman saw the prime importance of devotion to Christ. It was the motivation for everything that she did. And yet the disciples who sat round the table had forgotten the centrality of this. And they even sniped when they saw others doing that very thing. So, I ask you today, how is your devotion to Christ? How is your love for Jesus? You know, it's amazing, even as Christians, sometimes how superficial a conversation can be. I'm guilty of this myself. We regularly ask, don't we, about people's jobs and people's families and holidays and health. And if we're really brave, we ask them perhaps about their reading of scripture and their, maybe their prayer life, if they're praying regularly. But how often do we ask them this ultimate question? How is your love for the Lord? How many Christians, no longer frequenting places like this, would still be in the gathered company if someone had asked them in the business, how is your walk with the Lord? How is your devotion to Christ? Because that's the bottom line. This woman got it right. And in doing so, in an amazing way, she prepared Jesus for burial. But as we move forward, we see further preparations. In verses 12 to 26, we discover this time, Jesus taking a more hands-on role. And in this case, the preparations are for death. The arrangements that Jesus makes come within the context of a Passover meal. The Passover was celebrated once a year, commemorating the Jews' deliverance from Egypt many years before. Time was short, and the disciples were anxious, and they come with a question. Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And once again, I want you to notice 
that Jesus is completely prepared. He gives them instructions of where to go within the city, what to look for, and what to say. It's possible that Jesus had already made prior arrangements. Maybe he knew that this man carrying a jar, it would have been an unusual situation to see that. It was normally only the women who carried jars. Maybe he knew that this would be a good signal for them to look out for. On the other hand, this may be simply an example of Jesus' divine foreknowledge. In either case, Jesus has everything in place. And they find everything, just as Jesus has said. They sit down that evening for a meal. Maybe you've seen some illustrations of the Lord's Supper, such as Leonardo da Vinci's depiction. These are often the typical pictures that we have in our mind of this feast. And often they're quite misconstrued. For one thing, they reclined at the table and they did not sit on chairs. It was also customary to sit in a more circular fashion than at the long tables as we do. And perhaps most different of all, they almost certainly didn't sit with happy expressions and pious faces. Indeed, their faces probably had more of an expression of anxiety and sadness if this passage has anything to go by. For Jesus, if you like, produces the topic of conversation. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, if you were a Jew, this was unthinkable, what Jesus was suggesting. For when you ate with someone, it was more than just a meal. It expressed your your trust. It expressed your solidarity with them, your loyalty. And it was unthinkable that someone with whom you shared bread could betray you. And no wonder they all deny it, one by one. We can just picture it in dramatic fashion. But with little comfort, Jesus simply reiterates the point. Verse 20, it is one of the twelve, one who dips his bread into the bowl with me. Now, notice the two things that Jesus says about the betrayer. Firstly, their their betrayal is no surprise to God. Indeed, says Jesus, this was written about him way in the past, many years before, well before the crime. The cruel act was predicted. This may be a specific reference to Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Yet even though Scripture had predicted this betrayal, it does not mean that the perpetrator is off the hook. No, the betrayer bears personal responsibility. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, it would be better for him if he had not been born. Verse 21. You see, Judas is a tragic reminder that it is possible to be near holy things but not be holy. He's an illustration that even living for three years in the company of the Son of God does not guarantee godliness. You can be near Jesus in proximity, yet far from Jesus in your heart. If being among the twelve disciples for three years does not guarantee salvation, 
How much less does coming to church once a week, turning up on a Sunday, when you think about it? No, something more will be required for us to be saved. And the Lord's Supper becomes, if you like, a visual illustration of how God saves, how God rescues guilty, sinful human beings. Simple elements such as bread and wine can show how God will rescue us from sin and death and hell. And there are at least two things that we see in our passage that these symbols represent. There's lots more, and people have read all sorts of significances into this, but I'm just going to mention two where we're on quite safe ground. Firstly, they symbolize a new sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God entered into an agreement, a covenant, with his people, the people of Israel. There would be expectations on both sides. God would be faithful to Israel and would bless them, but the people of Israel would be required to be obedient to God. Unfortunately, they, like us, repeatedly disobeyed God's law and broke their side of the agreement, leaving them guilty before God and without a defense. But even then, God was gracious, and he allowed for a system of sacrifice. The idea was that an animal, a lamb or a goat, would be taken and slaughtered. And the blood of the animal, if you like, would cover over the guilt of the people. They would die in their place. But even this ultimately was deficient. The sacrifices didn't last, and the people didn't stop sinning. What was needed was a new and final sacrifice. And if we mark Jesus' words closely, we can see that he views himself as this sacrifice. So verse 22, he breaks the bread, he gives thanks, and then he adds, take it, this is my body. Or quite literally, this is my, myself, this is my person. In some way, Jesus is saying, this bread is a symbol of what will happen to me. I will be broken, and I want you to share in it. He also takes the cup of wine, verse 23, possibly the third or maybe the fourth of the Passover cups, and he offers it to them, they drink of it, and then he adds this interpretation, this is my blood. Now, we need to put ourselves into the mindset of someone who was Jewish. Jews had an aversion to blood, and there were all sorts of Old Testament laws about blood. And you can just imagine, they have the taste of wine still on their lips, and then Jesus adds this insight. This is my blood. This has been a horrible thought for them to consider. And yet he adds, in verse 24, that this blood is poured out for many. And so they, like us, will have to understand the significance of what this means. That in some way, Jesus' broken body and shed blood is a sacrifice for our sins. It is God's new agreement with us. Here is the new deal for coming to God, says Jesus. But the bread and wine also, secondly, reflect a new communion. It's not accidental that many churches call the Feast of the Lord's Supper communion. 
because the community benefits together in the death of Jesus Christ. You remember at Passover, the Jewish community celebrated together their deliverance as a nation. They had all been rescued. They all owed everything to God's deliverance. In the Lord's Supper, the Christian community comes together and remembers the death of Christ. It's not only significant that the Lord's Supper took place in a group setting, but it's also significant to note that the bread was shared round and one cup was passed between them. However we do it in practice, it is important that Christ must lie at the centre of the Lord's Supper while the community gathers around. And this is what makes us different, is it not, from just a social club. Our fellowship as Christians has the death of Christ at the very centre. We have a fellowship in the gospel and nothing else. Now, if you're a Christian, I simply encourage you, when you get the opportunity to get involved in the Lord's Supper, do it. Make it a priority. We celebrate this once a month in the church, only in one of the services. Find out when that is. It's usually the first Sunday of the month, sometimes morning, sometimes evening. Make it a commitment to be there. Jesus himself commanded us. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and all this sounds a little bit strange. Well, let me try to be as simple as possible and ask you two questions of yourself. First of all, have I accepted God's sacrifice? That should be the first question this makes you ask. And as a result of that, have I entered this new communion? Or to put it another way, have I come to God on his terms? Bread and wine, body and blood. Have I recognised that the only way to God is not what I do or some other system, but through the death of Christ alone. You know, we live in a generation that wants to meet with God on its own terms, don't we? I was quoting last Sunday evening Robbie Williams' latest song where he says this, I'm looking for something beyond understanding. I'm looking for meaning where nothing is demanding. But in the bread and wine, God says, here's the terms. I've given my son for you body and blood as a gift in your place take me up on the offer give your love and devotion to the person of Christ in simple faith and I hope if you've never done that before that this morning you will take God up on his offer as we conclude let me speak particularly to those of you who are Christians just a final encouragement and challenge. The short story which rounds off our chapter is a warning to the self-reliance and an encouragement to the failure. Working again to the divine timetable and having made nearly all the key arrangements, Gethsemane yet to come, Jesus goes with the disciples to the Mount of Olives. And somewhere along the way, he indicates to the disciples another shocking truth. Not only will one of the disciples betray him, but all of the disciples will fall away. You can imagine the suggestion was hardly popular among them. And as usual, Peter is the outspoken spokesman. 
But the word of Peter, I want you to notice, is one of self-confidence. For Peter is convinced in his unshakable self. Even if others fall away, he will not. Verse 29. And if necessary, he will go with Jesus even to death. But how wrong he will be proved, as Jesus himself predicts in verse 30. It is all too easy for us to fall into the trap of self-confidence. Even as Christians, an underlying thought that we are strong and steady and mature believers in Christ. And nothing can shake us, budge us or break us. We are beyond major failure, though sometimes we make minor mistakes. And often, that kind of pride leads to a fall. And we end up like Peter, in failure and inconsolable. It could be this morning that you've already fallen into that kind of trap. And you realize your own shortcomings. If so, you need to hear the word of Jesus. For what a wonderful promise this must have been to his disciples as Jesus offers them a second chance in verse 28. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. You see, Jesus' death and burial would be prepared for, but they would not be the end. Jesus would be raised from the dead. And the failure of Jesus' disciples would not be final. Once again, he would lead the way. Maybe you failed, but it's time to follow again. The risen Jesus is going ahead and he's asking you to follow him. Let's pray.